0: Hello, everyone. This is the WGN Radio Theater Program 469 in the series. It's May 16th, 2020. I'm your host, Carl Amari, and in front of me is my co-host, Lisa Wolf. What's up, Lisa?
1: Hi, Carl. What's up? Hey,
0: we have a lot of classic radio. We sure do. We will be here till three o'clock in the morning. And are you ready for this lineup, Lisa? I am. We've got eight great shows. We do. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, fibber mcgee and molly strange wills the lives of harry lime the aldrich family crime does not pay the charlie mccarthy show and the bill stern sports newsreel that is a lot of classic radio shows i
1: think we're going to be here for days and that's just fine no we're going to get it all in
0: (laughs) before three o'clock in the morning and it all begins right after this short break Hour one of the WGN Radio Theater. We have Philip Marlowe coming your way, but I do want to remind everyone listening that there are five half-hour classic radio shows waiting for you to digitally download absolutely free at our website, which is 100radioshows.com. Just log on to the number 100radioshows.com, the very top of the site, Put your email address in, we'll send you instantly an email with five links. You will receive Fipper McGee and Molly, Jack Benny,
1: Suspense, Gunsmoke, and Richard Diamond, Private Detective. That's
0: right. Absolutely free. Get them. They're yours. As our thank you for listening to our WGN radio theater program. Now, there are also hundreds of additional classic radio shows available at that website for purchase. And if you decide to purchase any of those shows make sure that you use the promo code
1: radio that is your secret code it gives you 70 percent off the regular price that's right 70 so percent off the website 100
0: radioshows.com all right time now for the adventures of philip marlowe this detective was created by raymond chandler for his first novel the big sleep in the films marlowe was played by dick powell Robert Montgomery, Humphrey Bogart, James Garner, and Robert Mitchum. It premiered on radio in 1947, starring Van Heflin in an NBC series. Then it moved to CBS in 1948, and Gerald Moore was cast as Marlowe. By 1949, this radio series had the largest audience in radio. Norman McDonald, the creator of Gunsmoke, was the producer-director. It lasted on radio until 1951. We have a January 22, 1949 broadcast called The Orange Dog. Here is Gerald Moore now uninterrupted in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. A startled
2: corpse, a blue-eyed woman, and a cryptic message scrawled by a dying man with the pieces of a Chinese puzzle that wouldn't fit together until I found out what was deadly about the orange dog.
3: From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Shh! now with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Orange Dog.
2: By six in the evening of a very slow day, I would resigned myself to the business of no business, so I took my feet down from my desk. Switched off the lights and started out the door for home with the prospect of a nice, quiet evening ahead of me. But I didn't make it, even as far as the door. Oh. Hello, Philip Marlowe.
4: Marlowe, my name is Shelley Martin. I'm at 8412 Los Feliz, a private residence. I want you to come out here right away. My sister is in a jam, a nasty one.
2: Well, Miss Martin, as a matter of fact, I was just closing up for the night and I was...
4: I need the services of a private detective right now, this minute. And I'm prepared to pay for them. There are plenty of others in town. Are you coming or not?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. And thanks for the reminder. That's me you hear sprinting up your front walk.
4: That's much better. And Marlowe, bring your brains along. You're going to need them.
2: And that was the end of my quiet evening. But I just couldn't resist those government engravings of Mr. Lincoln. So I drove down to Weston, turned off on Los Feliz, and found the number 8412. The yard was an overgrown tangle of perennial plants losing their battle with the weeds. (laughs) It was like a girl in a strapless evening gown with her hair up in curlers. However, I could see a light through the Venetian blinds, and the doorbell worked... ...with a resonant two-tone chime that caused the door to open just far enough to... Allow a pair of eyes so blue, they were almost purple to peek out at me.
4: Yes, what is it?
2: I, uh, I'm i delivering that private detective you ordered.
4: Oh, Marlowe. Come in. Thanks. Sit down, won't you?
2: Thanks again. All right, what's the next move?
4: It's about my kid sister. Hmm. She's involved with a man named Lou Horner, a San Francisco broker. She's quite deeply involved, I'm afraid. Oh? You see... Some very strange things are going on, Marlowe, and my sister is a naive kid caught right in the middle of
2: them. Yeah, I see. What sort of strange things, Miss Martin? Shelley. Sweet.
4: Well, to begin with, when I arrived from San Francisco today, my sister called me and asked me to meet her here in this house. When I got here, the lights were on, the radio was playing, and the front door was open. But the place was deserted.
2: Whose house is it? Horner's?
4: No, I think she said it belongs to a friend of his who's in Europe now. This Horner person uses it when he's in Los Angeles.
2: Well, couldn't they have stepped out for a while?
4: Mm-mm.
2: You know, you don't look the type, Shelly, but maybe you're just panicky, huh?
4: No, I'm not being panicky.
2: All right, all right. Where's the nasty jam?
4: Right behind the couch. Take a look.
2: Okay. But, you know, I... Oh, I see what you mean. Who is he, Shelly? How'd he get here?
4: Maybe it's Horner, I don't know. I uh, tried to search him, but I couldn't. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, it wouldn't have helped anyway. Whoever shot him cleaned him out. No wallet, no papers, nothing.
4: I found this magazine lying under his hand. Look here.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: He must have written this just before he died. Where's that? Here.
2: Oh. oh. It says, call Marion tonight about the orange dog of foe. Orange dog of foe. For what?
4: That's why I called you, Phil. Marion is my sister. And whatever the orange dog of foe is, it must be awfully important. We've got to find out what it means, Phil, for Marion's sake.
2: So far, it means murder, honey, and that's for the cops. No.
4: Well, all right, call them. But keep Marion's name out of it. A thing like this could destroy her.
2: But look, maybe she pulled the trigger on our friend here.
4: Maybe, you know? but I don't think so. She's a sweet kid, Phil. Give her a break. If I'm wrong, I swear I'll help you bring her in myself. Is that fair enough?
2: Okay, Shelly, it's a deal. It makes just as much sense as the orange dog of foe, but no more. After I checked as far as I could on my client and sent her home, which was to the Villa 12 at the Wilshire Gardens Hotel, I ripped the General Squeegee tire ad with a message scribbled across it out of the magazine, folded it up and stuck it in my pocket. Next, I called Lieutenant Barrett, at Homicide and told him where I'd found a body probably named Lou Horner, leaving out all the details about Shelley, Marion, and the orange dog. And then I started out the door, but got back as a shadow slid across the walk. I caught a glimpse of a large, ugly head of long, dirty hair set on a small, ugly body that was moving fast. By the time I got out on the walk, long hair was already putting mileage on a green coupe with a broken taillight. It winked mockingly as it went out of sight. So I got in my car and headed for New Chinatown.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: The a logical place to get some information regarding a Chinese dog. I saw a light filtering through a dingy window, illuminating the words James Tang, dealer in Oriental Curios. Inside the musty shop, a little man, dressed in a black kimono, drifted forward softly. Yes? I uh, uh, think perhaps you can help me, huh? I am honored. To be able to help would
6: bring... Fragrance of plum blossoms to my nostrils. Carpet of rose petals to
2: my humble floor.
6: And thousand blessings upon my head.
2: That is very pretty. Tell me, what is the dog of foe? The, The dog of foe?
6: Why? Why this? This fantastic creature here is called the dog of foe. His fierce eyes and snarling mouth are to
2: frighten away evil spirits from temples of Buddha. Why do you say called the dog of foe?
6: Amateur collectors and auctioneers have named him that. It sounds exotic
2: to cash customers. Actually, he is a lion, The Lion of Korea. I see. Tang, would you happen to have an orange dog or foe? Very strange that you should ask that, my friend. Strange? Why?
6: Reason number one.
2: There is no authentic orange dog or foe. That's a good reason. Why not?
6: Because two Buddhists... Orange is color of sorrow. The piece you stick up could not possibly be a painting.
2: What's reason number two? You
6: are second person to inquire after this non-existent
2: orange dog of within last few minutes. Was it an ugly little man with long hair? Quite contrary. It was very pretty girl with short hair. Was her name Marion?
6: She made point of not leaving her name.
2: Well, it proves something.
6: However, my friend old Chinese proverb, loosely translated, says, a little knowledge is the instrument of a fool.
2: There were nine other curio shops in the neighborhood, so I started making the rounds for the non-existent orange dog of foe and a girl who was interested in one. From the first three shops, I got a fast, horse laugh and the fact that the girl was still ahead of me. The next two added an insult apiece and a total blank on the dame. And from the sixth call, Saxon's a glossy, well-ordered place on West 7th Street. The only effect was a coldly curious raised eyebrow. The man in front of me, whom I took to be Mr. Saxon himself, was a gaunt white Russian with a high naked head the color of warm paraffin. His slender fingers played nervously with each other as we talked.
7: The orange dog of four. Yes, I have heard of such a piece, I think. It would be porcelain. Probably. This is your business. Who has it, Mr. Saxon? Can you tell me? No, no, I am sorry. I believe I heard this orange dog mentioned just once somewhere down in the village. But I'm sure I could never remember who spoke of it or when. Oh, no idea of its value then, huh? Now that you mention it, I seem to remember the figure 20,000. You mean yen. How much in American money? I am speaking of American money. It would be an importation from China, you know. How could it be worth that much? It's not even authentic, Mr. Saxon. Authentic? (laughs) You seem to know a good deal more than I about this orange dog. Possibly one would have to see it to appreciate its value. Yeah. Tell me, has a girl been in here tonight looking for this orange dog? A girl? I know. Know anybody named Marion? Marion. No, there is no one in my acquaintance by that name. But why do you ask? Because Marion has
2: quite an interest in the orange dog. I have a feeling they'd make a great team if we could get them together. I see.
7: And what is your name, sir?
2: It's not Fu Manchu, Mr. Saxon. Good night. Hmm. Saxon's expression didn't change. I turned and walked out of the place, and then because with both of us using double talk, the conversation was bound to deteriorate. At least I had found out that the orange dog of foe existed. and was going for a very high figure, especially for a phony. And it didn't take an abacus to figure out that Saxon knew more than he told me. Well, I started up the sidewalk for the next bric-a-brac emporium when I saw something parked on the side street which brought me to a halt. It was that green coop with a broken tail light. I went over to it, found it empty, and stuck my head inside to check the registration card for Longhair's real name. Yeah, it was a very foolish move because long hair at that very moment prodded my kidney with a muzzle of a 38. And neither he nor the gun had a sense of humor.
8: All right, Mr. Wiseguy, come on, walk. You and me are gone up the alley here. What's the matter? Don't you feel at home in the light? Shut up. I don't like him much anyway, so you better ease off with the smart science. Okay, this will do us far enough. Well, Mr. Wiseguy, did you find what you're looking for?
2: You mean the orange dog, shorty? The answer's no. The orange dog? So that's where the plates are. What plates? You're working for Horner. You don't know what plates. Look, chum, when you get your next haircut, have your brains dusted off. Nobody works for Horner anymore. Horner's dead.
8: Yeah, since when?
2: What's a surprise act for? You saw the body. You were sleeping around that house on Los Feliz. In fact, you might have killed Horner yourself. That
8: body wasn't Horner. Why, Horner is three times the size of that guy on Los Feliz. He's bald. Also, he's so dumb he can't remember his own phone number. Hold it. I'm looking for Alvarez Street where they fell those insures. I'm sorry, gentlemen. I don't want insulin. To... Hey, quiet. I'll blow your brains out. All right. Now, come on, Mr. Wise Guy. Tell me what Horner's got on his mind. You know, all right. I saw you taking orders from his girl. You mean Shelly Martin? Who else? I thought maybe you meant Marion. Marion? Who's Marion?
2: Shelly Martin's sister. And don't let her worry you. Marion's got the orange dog eating out of her hand. I don't say.
8: It ain't funny, mister. It's just peculiar. Because Shelley Martin don't have a sister, I know. So it seems like you're a very mixed-up character. In fact, Mr. Wise Guy, you're so mixed-up, you're no good to me at all. So get over there with the rest of that...
5: Oh!
2: I, I took my time getting up. The dirty, long-haired little man was gone. My head ached from the rap he'd given me with a pistol barrel. And I was disgusted with myself. Dry, dirty, disgusted like a drunk at sunrise because a nasty little jerk with an oversized head and a blue-eyed dynamo with auburn hair had me jumping through hoops like a trained ape. I stood in the alley and swore at myself until the futility of that routine dawned on me. Then I decided to go hunting. But I made one stop first at a telephone to at least get a bar off my conscience... Lieutenant Ibarra. Marlo, Lieutenant. I just found out that body in Los Feliz isn't Horner. I knew that an hour ago. Huh? The body isn't Horner, isn't Horner, is no broke. He's a counterfeiter, a big one. No. The dead man was a treasury agent named Slade who was closing in on Horner. So if you've got anything you haven't told, Phil, you better get it off your chest. At this point, it's a pleasure. A girl named Shelly Martin's calling the signals about now, and she can be found at Villa 12, Wilshire Gardens Hotel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hurry, you'll just about meet me there, Ibarra. Now, wait. Suppose you go alone and find out what you can first. That's a switch. I'll follow in half an hour. Let's not freeze her up, Marlowe. Let's keep her talking, okay? Okay, Barra, that's easy for her. She's got a forked tongue. Only this time it's going to wag strictly on the straight and narrow. I guarantee it. (laughs) toward the Wilshire Gardens and a beautiful liar named Shelley Martin, I was sure of two things. The plates that Longhair had wisecracked about just before he piled me into a row of garbage cans were the engraved kind that counterfeiters used to make money the easy way. And second, both Long Hair and Lou Horner were racing for the plates as well as the orange dog, which could be one and the same thing. But 20 minutes later, as I pulled up near Villa 12, which was strips of yellow light, raised voices drifting out of half-open Venetian blinds, I forgot about the gentleman involved and concentrated on a lady who didn't have a sister called Marion. I went around to the back of the villa where I found the service door unlocked and the kitchen beyond dark. And when I entered and quietly moved to a spot near the living room where I could see Shelley snapping at a pompous, excitable man with a red face, I figured that a little eavesdropping
4: might pay off. I'm here in Los Angeles. Is there anything wrong with that, Mr. Horner?
9: Yes, Everything. Why, I wouldn't even have known you were in town if I hadn't gone back to the place in Los Feliz where I saw you and some man having a delightful little chit-chat over the body of that tea man Treasury, man. Yes.
4: Is that who he was?
9: A meddlesome fool I caught snooping through my papers.
4: Then then you killed him, Lou.
9: Of course I killed him. I had to. Now stop asking questions and get out of here. Because this is business, not pleasure, Shelley. And that leaves no room for you.
4: Or Marion.
9: What do you know about Marion?
4: Not enough. But what I do know, I don't like. Look, Lou, who is Marion, and what does she mean to you?
9: Marion means money to me, Shelley. Nothing more. So just leave me alone here so that I can make a call according to schedule.
4: a call about... Lou.
2: What's the matter, Shelley?
4: Behind you, Lou. They're in the garden. Lou!
2: The bullet crashed through a closed window didn't stop until it got to Horner, who grabbed at his chest and dropped to the floor even before the glass quit flying. And by the time I got outside to where the shot had come from, I found nothing but a little wind rustling a lot of trees. When I got back to Shelley in the blood of a tweet on the carpet, Horner was already dead.
4: Marlowe. Marlowe, the man out there was Henry Peel.
2: Peel? Something in long hair and dirty clothes? Yes,
4: I met him in Horner's office once. Lou said he was a broker from Chicago.
2: Come on, both Peel and Horner are counterfeiters.
4: What? Lou, a counterfeit.
2: That's right. Never mind the carefully arched eyebrows, honey. They mean nothing.
4: But, Marlowe, I swear I never knew that Horner was anything but a broker.
2: A broker maltreating poor sister Marion? You're a liar, Shelley.
4: About Marion, yes. I haven't even got a sister. But from there on out, I'm telling the truth, Phil.
2: Then tell some more and fast.
4: All right, here it is. Lou Horner's been my
2: boyfriend. And, uh, checkbook?
4: For the past year and a half. But about a month ago, he suddenly stopped being very attentive. And I couldn't figure out why.
2: So you decided to keep your big blue eyes wide open, huh?
4: Exactly. And it paid off. Because I found out that, one, he had taken better than $20,000 out of his bank account. Two, that he was coming down here to Los Angeles.
2: And three, that an item named Marion might be beating your time.
4: Yes. And that part of it upset me plenty. Until ten minutes ago. But then I found out that Horner here was a murderer, and that, Marlowe, I don't buy.
2: Three cheers for the all-American girl.
4: Oh, skip it, Marlowe. I'll live my way. You live yours.
2: Don't worry, honey. Nobody wants to change places with you. Hey. Hey, look. Why does Horner wear a little rubber band on his
4: little finger, do you know? Oh, he had a bad memory. Used every kind of gadget in the books to keep himself from forgetting things, especially numbers. Oh, Oh, for example, that rubber band might mean 10 o'clock. How do you figure? Like five and five. The fingers on each hand, reading from left to right. Use things like that.
2: Oh. Wait a minute. Horner hmm? was going to make a call to Marion just now, and the message the T-man left was... Call
4: Marion tonight about, about...
2: the orange dog a foe. Shelly, baby, where's your phone? Fast. Come on, it's quarter after ten already. Oh,
4: it's out there in the hall, Marlowe. Oh. What are you talking about?
2: A line, honey, a line on your ex-sister, Marion. Marion. This is Mr. Saxon. Ah. Uh, Lou Horner, Mr. Saxon. I, I know I'm some 15 minutes late with this call, but I'd still like to see you about the orange dog of foe.
7: Certainly, Mr. Horner. The orange dog is here, waiting for you.
2: Good. I'll be right over.
4: Hello. who is Mr. Saxon? A
2: man very close to a lot of trouble, Shelley. Now, look, you wait right here for the law, and in particular, one lieutenant he Tell him nothing but the truth about Horner and what he meant to you in dollars and cents, and you may be all right.
4: But where are you going, Mona?
2: To a curio shop on West 7th Street to see, among other things, the orange dog of foe. You are the Mr. Horner who called? Yeah, yeah. Also, the one who was here this afternoon, you remember?
7: Oh, Yeah,
2: uh, Well, I—I'm sorry I didn't call you at ten, Mr. Saxon. According to schedule, I hope it hasn't inconvenienced
7: you. No, that's quite all right, Mr. Horner. One moment, sir. Uh. What's the matter? Is anything wrong tonight? Seem on edge, Mr. Saxon. I am. So please, Mr. Horner, don't make a single stupid move. What?
2: Wait a minute, why the gun, Mr. Saxon? I promise not to bite the orange dog. You
7: won't even touch the orange dog. Now, who are you?
2: Now, we've been all through that. I'm Horner Saxon, Lou Horner of San Francisco. No,
7: you're not. Horner would have had no reason to wander around curio shops as you did this afternoon, asking any and everybody about the orange dog. Now, once more, who are you and where is the real Lou Horner?
2: All right, we'll take him in that order. I'm a private detective named Philip Marlowe and Lou Horner's a corpse. Hmm. But also, I'm a good friend of yours, Saxon, because I'm going to give you a little bit of advice for free. Call it quits, buster. You're licked. What are you talking about, Marlowe? A T for treasury man named Slade. Before he died, Saxon, he talked. I see. And believe me, he said enough to put you away till orange dogs are as popular as lifesavers. And what do you say, Saxon? Do we play it smart?
7: Very well, Marlowe. We will play it smart. My kind of smart. Now, turn around and walk through that curtain there. I want to show you something. Orange dog, maybe? Yes. The orange dog of foe. I want you to see it for yourself before you die.
2: Saxon said die like it already happened. And after he relieved me of the comforting bulge of the gun in my pocket and marched me to a large, windowless room that was a little darker than the lining of an eight ball, he told me to stand very still and he turned on a single lamp that rested on a large scarred table. And next to it, an ordinary shipping crate and cushioned on all sides by white wrapping paper, I finally saw the orange dog of foe. It was a porcelain lion, pop-eyed majestic in a crazy way. And also it was colored orange, bright and clear. But now that I'd seen it, I knew that the next move was Saxon's. And I turned to face him. It was then that I noticed the black curtain behind him move slightly. And Longhair quietly stepped into the room. This Mr. Saxon did not know about.
7: Well, Marlowe, now that you have seen the orange dog for your first and last time, what do you think
8: of it? He thinks it's just jet Daddy, mister. What? Now drop your gun before I blow the top of your head off. Go on, drop it. Uh, it's better. Now sit down there and stay put. And you, Marlowe, get across the room.
2: Okay. Thanks for showing up, Peel, before Saxon here ran out of small jokes.
8: Oh, kid yourself, Marlowe. I didn't just show up. I've been right behind you all the way. That's how I work. So what do you want, Peel? A couple of very fine engraved plates that I've been after for six months now.
7: Plates which could be in the Orange Dog of Foe?
8: No place else but. Or do you think that maybe the late Mr. Horner wanted as an ornament?
7: But that's all it is. There are no plates in the Orange Dog. It is only a collector's
8: item. And you're a liar, Saxon. And I know the best way to prove that. Marlowe. Pick that thing up and toss it against the wall. No, no, don't. I tell you, there's nothing in it. Toss it, Marlowe. Go on. Okay, Peel. Ah, now we'll see who's right about the Plate's being in here. Nothing, huh, Peel? No, nothing. All right, Saxon, get up. I want to know what a plate saw, so I'm going to count to three. That's how long you have to live, if you don't
7: tell me. No, no. Peel, believe me, there are no plates. Why?
2: Hold it, Peel. Wait. Here are the plates. Here. In this jewel box. Look, right here. Under your Is he. Is he out, Marlowe? Yeah, he's out, all right. He took the light with him, too. Is there
7: is there another lamp in here? Oh, no, there isn't. Nor is there another gun. Why, you stinking little.
2: Wait a minute, those sirens saxon they're heading this way.
7: Police? Yeah, the police.
2: Looks like sooner or later everybody gets together in the back room at Saxon's, But huh? not
7: everybody stays here. So I'll take this wrapping paper and leave now. Wrapping paper? The stuff that was around the orange dog? Yes, a sample of the best grade of counterfeiting paper made, Marlow. And that's what Horner was supposed to buy, not plates. Those he got a month ago.
2: Still makes you a crook, Saxon, and one will never get past the front
7: door. Oh, no, we'll see about that. Marlow. Keep shooting, Saxon, in the dark. You got four shots left. You
2: filthy motherfucker! Only one now, Saxon. That's number six. You're through, Saxon. By the time he borrowed his boys, plus a half a dozen very anxious team men, got into the room. Saxon was already coming apart at the seams. After a half hour of steady questioning, he split wide open and led us all to a basement hideout... where the team men went wild over a few thousand sheets of... A-1 counterfeiting paper. But an hour later, after Peel, who admitted murdering Lou Horner... and Saxon, who was ready for the nearest straitjacket, were both in a lockup... there was still the problem of the... glib lass from San Francisco. But finally, when Shelley, Lieutenant Ibarra and I... stood the green light of the globe in front of police headquarters... I knew that the girl who technically was only guilty of withholding information from the police was not going to spend any time in the pokey. Because, after all, I was more or less guilty of the same thing. Besides, Lieutenant Ibarra was still interested in the others. Well, Marlowe, it looks like the whole business actually boils down to a single
3: transaction between Clay Saxon, who had the counterfeiting paper, and Lou Horner, who was supposed to
2: buy it. That's right, Ibarra. But Horner, who must have made his contact with Saxon via some middleman in San Francisco... Only had a telephone number and the password, the orange dog of foe to work on here in L.A. But how'd you get hold of that number, Phil? From the message the T man left before he died.
4: You mean you actually called someone named Marion?
2: No, honey. I just dialed Marion. Hmm? M-A Madison. R I O N 7466. Madison 7466.
4: You get it? Yeah. <laughs> Another one of Horner's screwy memory tricks. Like the rubber band on his tenth finger.
2: Hey, that's pretty good, Phil. Ah, oh, it's an old gimmick, really. I read it in a dozen detective stories. Well, you know, Maybe I ought to read some of those. <laughs> well, good night, Philip. Look for you tomorrow. Night, Lieutenant. Well, Shelley, do I, uh, do I show you the way home?
4: Now, Marla, aren't you hungry or thirsty or
2: something? Yeah, yeah, I uh, guess I am at that.
4: Well, I know just the place for us, darling. Oh? It's a cute little place right smack in the middle of Chinatown.
2: Well, we got through a small Chinese dinner without seeing or hearing from a single orange dog. And when it came time to leave, I was thinking that Shelley wasn't really too bad a kid at that. So when she left the table to powder her nose, I started to make plans. But when she got back, I forgot about them because in the meantime, she'd run into an old friend. Yeah, a rich old friend who was all alone in the big city. I said I didn't mind taking a rain check when she explained that he was from Kansas City and a broker at that. He certainly was overweight. Too much steak and potatoes. Hmm. Steak and potatoes. Wonder if Lindy's is still open.
3: Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore, and is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Francis Robinson, Edgar Barrier, Tony Barrett, Lou Krugman, and Ed Begley. Lieutenant Detective Abar is played by Jeff Corey. The special music was by Richard Oran.
0: That's The Adventures of Philip Marlowe with the Orange Dog from January 22nd, 1949. Also in that cast, Francis Robinson with Edgar Barrier, Tony Barrett, Lou Krugman, Ed Begley, and the announcer, Roy Rowan, that was sustained over CBS. Hope you enjoyed that. All right, Lisa, it's time now for Fibber McGee and Molly. We'll have the first half of this half-hour show, then we'll break for news, come back, And have the concluding uh, half of this program. Fibber, McGee, and Molly, of course, a great comedy series that starred real-life husband and wife Jim and Marion Jordan. They were natives of Peoria, Illinois. It premiered on radio in 1935. And they lived at 79 Wistful Vista in Wistful Vista, USA. It was co-created by Don Quinn. Now, on Fibber McGee and Molly, there was all these crazy characters that would stop by their home at 79 Wistful Vista, including Morton P. Gildersleeve, played by Hal Perry. You heard Mayor Latrivia, played by Gail Gordon, Wallace Wimple, the old-timer, Horatio K. Boomer, all played by Bill Thompson. Then there was Doc Gamble, played by Arthur Q. Bryant, and Teenie, who was played by... Marion Jordan, of course, of Fibber McGee and Molly Fame. She did it in a kind of a kid's voice. Now, there was Fibber's Hall Closet, which was a running gag every once in a while. Fibber would open his uh, very messy hall closet. All the contents would fall out all over the place. It was sponsored for most of its run. By Johnson's Wax, and their longtime announcer was Harlow Wilcox. So let's go back to a broadcast date of April 20th, 1943. It's called A Dress for Molly. Here's Fibber, McGee, and Molly. The Johnson Wax program with Fibber, McGee, and Molly.
10: Of Johnson's Wax, Johnson's Car New, and Johnson's self-polishing glow coat present Bibber McGee and Molly, written by Don Quinn, with music by the Kingsmen and Billy Mills Orchestra. <laughs> well, it's a raw, windy spring day in West Vista. Just the kind of day a man likes to stay indoors with a pipe and a good book. Or, in this case, a nickel cigar and a copy of Flash Gordon comics. (laughs) The lady of the house is occupied with a dress pattern as we meet Fibber McGee and Molly. So
11: Flash ups to him and
12: he says, McGee, I'm so exasperated. What about? All this dress pattern. I can't seem to figure it out. It's been so long since I made a dress for myself, I'm all out of practice.
11: I thought you could buy dresses about as cheap as you could make them.
12: Well, not quite. Anyway, we said we'd buy war bonds instead of Easter clothes, didn't we? So I have this material and I bought a pattern for 35 cents.
11: Hmm. Let me see it. See? Hmm. This don't look so tough. All you got to do is lay the pattern out on the cloth and cut around it.
12: Oh, is that all?
11: Why, certainly. That's a cinch.
12: Look who's talking. Huh? I saw a sock you darned once. (laughs) You bunched it up around the hole, and you tied the string around it and pounded it down with a hammer.
11: That was an emergency. This is simply a matter of intelligence, just oh, a little... Oh, dear.
12: I suppose you could work out this dress pattern in nothing flat.
11: Why, certainly. Less than that. And with one eye tied behind me.
12: All right, go ahead. Huh? Huh? I said, go ahead. You've got the job. Oh,
11: hey, now, wait a minute. I merely said I could. After all, a you man... You mean you
12: refuse to do it when you know how and I don't?
11: No, no, I'm not refusing. I just said a man... Oh, no,
12: then you will oh, you, darling. I could just kiss you for that because... Now,
11: I... wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm no dressmaker. I was just trying to point out... Oh, but...
12: I'm so glad I married a man who could do things. Huh? Oh, you're so sweet to promise to do this, McGee. Now, you I'm get wait. started while I run up and get the scissors and the pins and everything. I'll be right hey, back and... Hey, wait!
11: Oh... <sighs> Well, I'll be. This is going to be one of my bad days. <laughs> Why can't I keep my big, busy, fat, loud mouth shut? I got about as much business cutting out dresses as Doolittle has riding the subway. I can get myself in a more. Come in. Oh, All <laughs>
13: Easy out, ain't it?
11: Yeah.
13: Haven't been pushed around by the wind so hard since I marched in the parade last 4th of July. There
11: wasn't any wind that day.
13: There was where I marched, Johnny. <laughs> right in front of the tuba player. <laughs> <laughs> what you doing?
11: Well, if you must know, my nosy friend, at this moment I am old Joe Butterick. I am Mr. Modiste in person. I'm an unstrung harper from Harper's Bazaar, and when I do this, that ain't B for victory. That's for Vogue.
13: What you talking about, Johnny? What you sore about?
11: I'm sore at myself. I stuck my neck out, and when I hauled it back in, I was wearing a horse collar. (laughs) I get myself into more jams than Cross and Blackwell. You want to buy about ten shares of stupidity?
13: I just cornered the market. No, no, no. Take it easy, Johnny. Well, gee whiz. You better tear up your red stamps. You're eating too much meat.
5: <laughs>
11: Look, you see this dress pattern? Huh? I just elected myself to make something out of it. And me that don't know a replete pleat from a stuffed cuff on a freak frock.
13: You're <laughs> in a bad spot, Johnny. I'll say so. Sorry I can't help you out. Just pull your way through, kid. Maybe you can figure out where the bodice is buried. <laughs> <laughs> if Bessie was here... Gee, how but... are you getting along
12: with it? Oh, hello, Mr.
13: Oldtimer. Hi there, daughter. Understand Johnny here is going to help you with your new dress. Yes. Well, he's just the kid that can do it.
11: Oh, pipe down, will
13: you? Oh, you'll make out all right, Johnny. I knew a kid once, much dumber than you, that used to make all his own neckties. I was one of his
12: pallbearers. Oh, heavenly days. What happened
13: to him? Made a novelty necktie out of rawhide, daughter. Went out in the rain with it. Sun come out later, dried the rawhide, and strangled him. (laughs) We seen him getting red in the face and keep pointing to the necktie, but we thought he was blushing and asking our opinion of it. We just stood there smiling and nodding at him till the poor fellow was gone. (laughs)
12: Well, let's get at it, McGee Or rather, let you get at it Now, here's a paper, pins, and some scissors And a blue pencil Will you need anything else?
11: Yes, a good swift kick in the... No No, I guess not <laughs> Now, let's see First, I better read the instructions It says to put the rink on the farm. Oh,
12: the I'm so, so proud of you, dearie Imagine a man being able to do this. On
11: the... Hey, we got a bias. A what? A bias.
12: <laughs>
11: Part of this has got to be cut on the bias.
12: <laughs> oh, never mind.
11: I'll cut it on the floor. <laughs> More room anyway. Now let me see. First, I lay out the material.
12: Yes, and you better pin it to the rug, McGee, so it won't slip.
11: Yeah, I was just going to. Hand me a thumbtack.
12: Why don't you use pins?
11: I always use thumbtacks for this stuff. Holds it platter.
12: My goodness, I never would have thought of that But we haven't got any thumbtacks, dearie Use them all in your warm-ass Well,
11: oh, for the love of my... Come
12: in Open the
14: door, Open the
11: door Hi, mister Doggone it, sis, look what you did I had this pattern all laid out And you had to open the door and blow it all over the place Why don't you go where you're... I mean, why don't you be more... What do you want?
12: Oh, don't be so grouchy, (laughs) McGee She can't help it if it's so windy outside or inside either, for that matter.
11: Well, gee whiz, how can a guy concentrate with a 40-mile gale blown through the joint?
14: What you doing, mister? Hmm, what you? Hmm. I'm,
11: I'm, I'm cutting out a dress. And don't go blabbing it all over the neighborhood.
12: What difference would it make? It's no disgrace to know how to do things.
11: It's a disgrace to have people think you know how to do certain things better than you do.
14: Well, maybe I can help you, mister. Now look, if you put some plackets under the arms, the problem will for understand the sagittar and then give you enough camadan to put a kick plate in the skirt.
11: <laughs> <laughs> I know that much, sis. I'm no dumbbell. <laughs> What was it you wanted?
14: Well, I wanted you to help me build a model airplane. I got all the stuff. Oh,
11: I'm sorry, sis. I haven't got time today. Come back tomorrow.
14: Okay. But have you got time for a poodle? I don't know. Well, what is it? Yes, and make it snappy. Well, why is an elephant afraid of a mouse? Huh? Well, why is he? Because an elephant has a trunk, uh-huh. and a trunk has three trays, and three trays beats two pears, and pears grow on trees, and trees have bark, and so does a dog, and a dog is man's best friend, and your best friends won't tell you, neither will I. <laughs> dog.
12: Now, don't forget McGee, allow for a zipper on
11: the skirt Don't worry, I got it figured in I also got a place for another one Where? Right across my big noisy mouth <laughs> Next time I talk myself into a woman's job like this, I'll Hey, are you sure we haven't got any thumbtacks? No,
12: we haven't yet Well, I'll
11: have to call the drugstore and have Kramer send a couple over Hand me the phone Here Thanks Hello, operator Give me Kramer's drugstore on the corner of Mert How are you, Mert? Oh, dear How's <laughs> every oh, little thing, Mert? There's a what's say, Mert? Your grandfather got clipped on the puss.
12: Oh, good heavens. What happened, McGee? He
11: got stuck 40 bucks for a Persian cat that was only worth 10. <laughs> what say, Mert? Yeah, that's what I thought. Never mind, it wasn't important. Thanks, Mert. Kramer's is busy.
12: Well, listen, <laughs> you can use pins. Now, here, here's the pattern for the front.
11: Uh-huh. Well, let me see. Hand me a couple of them safety pins there. Okay.
12: Come in. Hey, now
11: watch out
12: for the stuff. Don't oh. let it Hey! Oh, dear, old watch dear. the cabin. Shut the door. Shut the door. Shut the door. Well, my goodness, Abigail Uppington. Hello, darling. Uh, how do you do, my dear? And
11: Mr. McGee. Have... Hi, Eppie. Excuse me, but would you be so good as to hand me the back of my skirt?
12: The what? He's lost the back of his skirt, Abigail. Yeah. Good heavens, the back of his skirt? When? And, and what have I to do with it? It's in your hat. In my hat?
13: Yes, in your hat.
12: I beg your pardon, Mr. McGee. I did not come here to. Now, be in now, I... Abigail, you don't understand. McGee's laying out a dress pattern for me. And when you opened the door, the pattern for the back of his skirt blew up and landed on your hat. Oh, oh, oh I see. Oh, oh, yeah, Mr. McGee. Thanks
11: pretty embarrassing the way a fellow's skirts blow around, isn't it? (laughs) Well, let me see. A panel under the arm
12: here. Well, what on earth? Now, I had no idea you were so versatile, Mr. McGee. Where did you ever learn dressmaking? (laughs) (laughs) He never did, Abigail. He said that anybody with brains could make a dress, and since he admits he has brains, I'm letting him do it. Yeah, and it's a
11: cinch, girls. It's a cinch. In fact, I'm thinking of opening up a tailor shop after the war. Get Fred Nittany from Starved Rock, Illinois, to go in with me.
12: Say, uh, where did you know this Fred Nittany, McGee? I've heard you speak of him so often.
11: I was in vaudeville with Fred. We'd done a blackface act
12: together, me and Fred. <laughs> <laughs> McGee's always loved vaudeville, Abigail. Even when he was three and four years old, he was putting on blackface and playing minstrel show. <laughs> really? Yes, sir.
11: I was an actor at heart for my second year. I got so obnoxious to my father, he took me out in the woodshed and beat it out of me with a hickory stick. And for years afterward, I was known as the hickory-cured ham. <laughs> hey, Effie. Uh, yes? I almost forgot to tell you. You know, I think you got the right spirit.
12: Why, McGee?
11: You know, I told you. She worked all day long in her victory garden yesterday. I saw you out there a half a dozen times yesterday. In her old clothes, she was. And that derby hat. And I never saw you looking so healthy and happy,
12: Effie. Uh, Mr. McGee... I was not in my garden yesterday. No? That was my
15: scarecrow. Goodbye.
0: (laughs) That's the first half of Fibber McGee and Molly from April 20th, 1943, starring Jim and Marion Jordan. We'll have more of it, but first, these words. Lisa, I want to familiarize our listening audience with Matt Burdeen, ...of Burdine Jewelers. Now, I've known Matt for many, many years. I trust him. He has a jewelry store where you can not only buy amazing fine jewelry pieces, but you can also sell Burdines your fine jewelry that you may not wear anymore. I know I had some that I didn't wear. It was sitting in a safety deposit box, and I turned it into a lot of cash. Cash is yeah, always cash good. Cash is good, and I know you revitalize some of your jewelry. So uh, Matt Burdine is really the guy to talk to. You can uh, go to his website, burdines.com, that's B-U-R-D-E-E-N-S.com, or you can call a toll-free number. Right.
1: Give Matt a call at 800-875-4418. Again, that's 800-875-4418. And if you mention this radio offer,
0: Matt will give you a free appraisal. That's right. Check out your uh, your safety deposit box. Maybe there are fine jewelry pieces that you're not going to wear anymore. Turn it into cash. And Matt Burdine Pays top, top prices. Go to his website, Burdens, B-U-R-D-E-E-N-S dot com, or call the toll-free number
1: at 800-875-4418.
0: Let's uh, go to news when we come back. It's more on Fibber McGee and Molly. We'll also tune in to Strange Wills, so stick around. Hour 2 of the WGN Radio Theater. Lisa Wolf and I are here Every Saturday night from 10 p.m. until 3 o'clock in the morning. And we now play eight classic radio shows each and every Saturday night. Eight of your favorite classic radio shows. Now, in the last hour, we began listening to Fibber McGee and Molly. So in this hour, we'll have the conclusion. Also, Strange Wills from 1947. And it all begins after this short break. Hour 2 of the WGN Radio Theater. Before we tune in to the conclusion of Fibber McGee and Molly, I want to remind everyone listening that we have a classic radio club. Now, this club is for fans of these golden age of radio shows. Each and every month, as a member of the classic radio club, you will be sent 10 of these shows that I will choose from my library of over one hundred thousand classic radio shows they will be digitally remastered they sound amazing you'll get comedies westerns detective uh, mystery shows even a romance show every once in a while Lisa can you oh, believe boy. it well
1: I threw that I throw those in every so often <laughs> yeah <you'll laughs> against get... <laughs> your better judgment
0: <laughs> you will get the best shows from the golden age of radio by being a member of the classic radio club So go to our website, classicradioclub.com. We hope you'll join just like hundreds and hundreds of your fellow listeners. They're members of the Classic Radio Club. We hope you will join as well. All right. Last hour, we began listening to Fibber McGee and Molly from April 20th, 1943. It's called A Dress for Molly. Here's Jim and Marion Jordan in the conclusion now of Fibber McGee and Molly. Look at all
11: those patterns. Yes.
0: Bloom all over the place. Help me get
11: them together,
12: Molly. All right, dear. Now, listen, when you get the dress all cut out, you can slip it on while I see how it
11: looks. Oh, no, you don't. Not me, baby. I may not be bright, but I'm no dummy. Anyway, you can't fit your dress on me. Wouldn't prove anything. You and I don't throw the same shadow.
12: Well, my goodness, it would be just a... What yeah. the?
11: Hello, folks.
12: Oh, hello, Mr. Wilcox.
11: Hello, folks, says he in that jolly good fellow way. <laughs> Why don't you knock before you bust into people's houses, Junior? Look what you did to all these dress patterns.
10: Blew them all over the room. Oh, I'm sorry. I really am, Molly. I didn't know you were working on a dress.
12: I'm not. McGee is.
10: What? He is. Yes, I am, and I don't want to hear any wisecracks, too, either. Oh, I wasn't going to crack wise, pal. Well... If a fellow likes to make dresses, it's none of my business. Everybody is entitled to a hobby. Why, I know a guy who spends practically all day long polishing his car. Doesn't need it, but he loves to do it, because he says he gets such a kick out of using Johnson's car new. These with which it's applied and wiped off. The double job it does in both cleaning and polishing. Well, he's never gotten over it.
11: Well, don't look at me. We haven't got a car.
10: Well, I know that, pal. I was just saying how Johnson's car new does impress people. They can't get over how it cleans and polishes in one simple, easy application. Mm -hmm. How it protects and preserves the finish. These days, when you can't just run out and trade in your car for a new one. We haven't got a car. No. (laughs) But they know, they know you can trade in that dust and road grime for a
11: nice, dazzling, shiny (laughs) polish by using car new.
12: Say, how did we get on this subject?
11: Oh, leave it to Junior to throw in that business-like touch. I'm getting so I can't look at his map without trying to find Racine, Wisconsin on it. Well, I won't bother you any longer, pal. Look, if you get to where you want to get out with the men folks,
10: come on over to my house and bring your crocheting. We can sit on the porch and rock.
11: (laughs) Why is that big... One of these days, he's going to irritate me one too many. And I'll clack his cravicle. Er, Crack his cravicle.
12: Listen, I wouldn't if I were you. (laughs) You know, Mr. Wilcox is an old polo player. Yeah. He's in pretty good condition. So
11: what's polo? Hockey on a hay burner. (laughs) Badminton on a burrow. Golf at a gallop. Anybody who has the least...
14: (coughs) Oh. McGee, what's
12: the matter, are you Ill? Why, you're white as a sheet, to coin a clever phrase. McGee, say something.
11: Hi. Hi. Is there... Is there a safety oh. pin on the floor near my feet?
12: No. No, I don't see any. Oh. Not anywhere near round. And I... I swallowed it. What?
11: Get a doctor, quick. I swallowed a safety pin.
12: What makes you think you did? I
11: had it in my mouth, pinning patterns... When Wilcox Oh, get the doctor, quick
12: Heavenly days, maybe I better Lie down on the couch, No, Daddy. no,
11: no, I, I don't dare move It, it mm. might spring open in me
12: Oh, oh this is terrible Hello, oh. operator, quick uh, Give me Dr. J. Ramsey Gamble oh. and the... No, 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 Myrtle, not now Get me the doctor
11: <laughs> Tell him to bring a small cork Maybe I can swallow the cork And turn a few somersaults and, <laughs> and get the cork stuck on the end of the pin So I...
12: <laughs> Hello, doctor Mrs. McGee, my husband swallowed a safety pin. What? No, he wasn't. We haven't got a baby. <laughs> no. Well, hurry right over, doctor. Thank you. He said, lie quietly, McGee, till he got here.
11: What do you think I was going to do, organize a softball team? Oh, why did I ever
15: say I was smart? Why, why did, did I... I ever get
12: myself into such a vigilance? Delicate... Oh, my goodness, mm. the doctor got here quick. Oh, Come no. in. Let the door.
15: Hey, hello, Mrs. McGee. Hello, Mr. McGee. Oh,
12: hello, Mr. Wimple. Oh,
11: hi, Wimp.
15: My goodness, what's the matter with Mr. McGee? Well,
12: he swallowed a safety pin, Mr. Wimple.
15: He did? Does he like safety pins?
12: <laughs>
11: no, I don't like safety pins. I swallowed it inadvertently. Oh. <laughs>
15: If there's anything I can do for him, I'm on the way to the drugstore anyway, Mrs. McGee. No,
12: no, thank you, Mr. Wimple. The doctor's on his way over. He says he just has one stop and he'll be here.
15: If it's Dr. Gamble, he's stopping at our house first. Is your wife sick, Wimple? Who, Sweetie Face. <laughs> oh no, Mister McGee. She's as strong as a horse, <laughs> stronger even. Stronger? Yes. She was riding horseback yesterday, and the horse threw Sweetie Face over a fence. Ooh. So Sweetie Face came back, picked up the horse, and threw him over the fence. <laughs>
12: Well, then why is Dr. Gamble
15: coming to your house, Mr. Wimple? Oh, one of Sweetie Face's wrestling and boxing students needs medical attention, Mrs. McGee.
11: What kind of medical attention, Wimple?
15: Oh, Sweetie Face gave him a rabbit punch... And for two hours, he's been sitting on the floor, wiggling his ears and twitching his nose. (laughs) And his eyes are pink, too.
12: Oh, how sweet. You know, she ought to keep him like that over Easter.
15: The trouble with sweetie face is, she knows her own strength. Are you sure I can't get you anything at the drugstore, folks?
11: No, thanks, wimp, old man.
15: Won't be any trouble. All I'm going for is to get some gunpowder. Gunpowder? Yes. I use it to brush my teeth with. What's the idea? It's the only way I can shoot my mouth off around our house. <laughs> and I hope they find the pink at
10: <laughs> The King's Men and the Song of the Merchant Marine.
16: He he ho it's a long, long way to go. It's a long, long pull with our hatches full. Braving the wind, braving the sea, fighting a dangerous Oh, He ho my ho let the sea roll high or low. We can cross any ocean, sail any river. The goods and we'll deliver down the submarine. We're the men of the merchant marine. I've carried guns to the Solomons and bombs to Tripoli. I've carried wheat for the boys to eat from Nome to the Coral Sea. I've sailed with planes to Liverpool and Leningrad with tanks. I made it through to Ireland too. With a regiment of yanks, I've burned with the deck plates heat
5: and
16: frozen with the cold while dodging subs in rusty tops with nitro in the ho, my hole Behold, he hold, let the sea roll high or low we can cross any ocean sail any
5: Find the
12: Merchant Marine will be there. Well now, the doctor ought to be here any minute, McGee How do you feel?
11: I, I don't know, kind of numb
12: have I, have I been unconscious? Yes, for about ten minutes Oh And it was the loudest case of unconsciousness I ever heard. (laughs) Did you swallow a safety pin or a sawmill?
11: Hmm. fine thing. Here I go make myself an object of ridicule by trying to help you make a dress and all. Say, incidentally,
12: what'd you do to that pattern? There's some pieces of it I never saw before. Well,
11: maybe some of them got torn, too, when the wind blew them around. No,
12: no, I don't think so. Uh Huh? There's one piece of pattern that's shaped like no part of me that anyone ever told me about. (laughs) (laughs) Several of them are... Come in. Shut the door. Shut the door. Oh, hello,
3: Dr. Gamble. Hello, Mrs. McGee. Well, where's the human scrap pile? (laughs) Oh, you you think you're going to have to operate, Doc? Now, 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 stop shaking, McGee. Swallowing a safety pin isn't necessarily fatal, you know. Oh, uh, do
12: you think he really swallowed it, Doctor?
3: My goodness, I almost hope so. Oh, you hope so? Yes, I've just invented a new instrument for extracting swallowed objects. I call it the Gamble Grab. I'm awfully anxious to try it out on somebody I've been buying the little boys in the neighborhood marbles all spring, but nothing has
11: happened yet Take off your pants, McGee (laughs)
5: You
11: you don't understand, Doc I, I didn't sit on it I swallowed it Stop arguing, take off your pants
12: Now listen, don't look like that, McGee Your purple shorts are an old story to me Do what the doctor says
3: Oh, okay Uh, what was he doing when he swallowed this safety pin, Mrs. McGee?
12: Cutting out a dress
3: Cutting out a dress?
11: What were you doing, playing pool at the Elks?
12: (laughs) Well, he was doing it for me, doctor He said there was nothing to it if a person had brains, so I Okay,
11: doc, you want to
3: examine me? No, I want to examine the pants Huh? Hmm, just as I thought Here's your safety pin.
12: Heavenly days, where was it?
3: Where I usually find things men think they've swallowed. In the cuff of his pants.
11: <laughs> boy, is that a relief. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to brought you clear over here on a wild goose chase, Doc. <laughs> oh,
3: wasn't a wild goose chase at all, my boy. <laughs> my bill will still be $7. Yeah.
12: Why,
5: certainly.
11: What do you mean, why, certainly? He didn't do anything, did Oh,
12: now, listen, don't pay any attention to him, doctor. You know, he's so relieved at finding that safety pin, he doesn't know what he's saying.
11: Oh, no? Well, I ain't paying any seven bucks for having a pin took out of the cup of my pants.
3: That's robbery. Now, look here, you ungrateful little nature faker. If you think I enjoy neglecting some really sick people to take care of a hypochondriac like you... Who's a hypochondriac? You are.
11: (laughs) Is that so? Yes, that's so. It is, huh? Yes, it is. (laughs) Hey, Molly, what's a hypochondriac?
12: <laughs> it's somebody who always has imaginary ailments. Is
11: that right, Doc? Certainly. You're as healthy as a goat. You've never called me yet when there was really something wrong.
3: You hear that,
12: Molly? Yes, why?
11: Because he's just admitted he's being charged charging me for treatments when there was nothing the matter with me. I'm going to report him to the American Medicinal Association for malnutrition. You mean <laughs> malpractice,
3: McGee. <laughs> you can never get me on a malnutrition charge. <laughs> He, Doctor. Why couldn't he? Because I'm thoroughly fed up. Good day.
12: <laughs>
11: <laughs> well, I guess I gave him a good scare at that, didn't oh, I? Oh, <laughs> sure.
12: He's frightened out of his wits. <clears throat> now, come on, McGee, help me make sense out of this pattern. Look at this piece here. You oh, that's part
11: I... of the insert that goes under the. Oh, no, it isn't either. Is there a number on it? All the pieces are numbered.
12: Yes. This is B17. B17. <laughs>
11: B seventeen. Well, that can't go next to B eighteen because that's part of the shoulder. Hey, what's this one here? B
12: thirty eight. Doesn't fit any place. Look at the shape of it, McGee. I'm sorry I ever asked you to do this for me.
11: You're sorry? My gosh! Hey, there's about twelve more pieces of this pattern than there was when I started. Did
12: you add some? No, I didn't. But it must make sense somehow. Let's piece them together and see how far we get.
11: Okay. This goes. Oh, that won't go sound on top. You know. can't fit these. They're...
12: Oh, I give up, McGee. It's hopeless. I'm
11: darned if I know what happened. If you ever got that thing together and wore it, you'd look like you were going to a costume party at the wreck of the Hesperus. Almond. The...
14: Oh dear, come in. Hi, Mister Hunt. Sis, I told you once
11: today I'm busy. Now beat it.
14: You won't help me build my model airplanes, Mister. No. Well, can I, can I please have my patterns back? I left them on the floor when I was here the last time. <laughs> <laughs> awesome.
12: He, thanks to you, I'll have to wear an old dress next Thursday
11: What happens next Thursday? How
12: many days have you forgotten? Huh? We're visiting the craft music hall Oh my
11: gosh, how could I have forgot that? Especially after that swell telegram they sent me
12: Oh, what was that? You didn't tell me I
11: didn't? Well, it said something about how glad they'd be to see you And in my case, how the biggest cheese of all goes to the craft music hall <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty nice Oh,
12: you did, huh?
11: Yeah, don't you? Oh, I get it Good night.
12: Good night, all.
10: (laughs) The characters of Wallace Wimple and the Old Timer heard on our program were played by Bill Thompson. This is Harlow Wilcox speaking for the makers of Johnson Wax Finishes for Home and Industry, inviting you all to join us again next Tuesday night. Good night. This program came to you from Hollywood. This is the National Broadcasting Company.
0: And that's Faber McGee and Molly from April 20th, 1943, A Dress for Molly, starring Jim and Marion Jordan, also in that cast. You heard The King's Men, Billy Mills and his orchestra, Bill Thompson, and also Arthur Q. Bryant with Isabel Randolph, with Harlow Wilcox announcing. And I promise you, folks, I promise, 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 if I ever have any more babies Mm -hmm. or if I buy a dog... I'm naming him or her Harlow.
1: Well, it's not too late for you to have children.
0: It's not? It's never too late for you. It's not, huh? <laughs> no. I'd like to see it, though. Can you imagine? <laughs> could you just imagine? I'm, if I called you one day and said, hey, Lisa, I'm having a
1: Unfortunately, a, a I baby.
0: could. <laughs> I'm having a baby, and I'm going to name him or her Harlow,
1: I'm on board. I wish I thought of it you many love years baby. ago. You love babies. You love babies. Oh yeah. Gosh,
0: Lisa's like, I could just see you. you know? Oh, I would have a baby you now prob- if I was alone in the tooth
1: here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you would have a baby right now. Oh, yes. Really? Yeah. Like maybe
1: oh. not like in this room, but yeah. in general. You
0: would have one. Though, oh yeah. Huh? Talk to Dan.
1: Okay, I'll see what I can do.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Talk to diver Dan. He'll he'll give you another baby. Why I not? Right? Oh my gosh. All right. Well, uh, that would be strange. And so we have a show called Strange. <laughs> Bill's next. Uh, this was a drama from 1946. Uh, only 26 half hours were ever produced, and it starred film and stage personality Warren William. He played probate attorney Warren Francis O'Connell. And he provided a first-person accounting of the legal entanglements of last wills and testaments. Very interesting show. Now, these were strange stories from strange wills under strange circumstances. Now, the casts included Howard Culver, Carlton Young, Lorraine Tuttle, William Conrad, Peggy Weber, and many other great LA actors. Marvin Miller was the narrator, and it was syndicated to stations around uh, the globe by Teleways Radio Productions. We have a broadcast for you now from March 7th, 1947. It's called Margin for Love. Here is Warren William in Strange Wills.
17: Strange Wills. Starring the distinguished Hollywood actor Warren William and featuring Lorene Tuttle with Howard Culver and an all-star Hollywood cast. Original music by Del Castillo. Dead men's wills are often strange. We cannot attempt to understand them or try to find the answers. We can but tell the story.
18: This is Warren William bringing you the story, Margin for Love. The greatest tragedy in the life of Catherine Ryan happened one dull November morning when dark grey clouds were hanging ominously low over the
9: criminal court's building. Timothy, Edward Ryan, prisoner before the bar. Step forward, please. Jury of your peers has found you guilty of murder in the first degree. Have you anything to say before this court pronounces sentence upon you?
17: Only what I've said all during this trial, Your Honor. I'm innocent of the charge of murder. I did not kill Tom Miller.
9: Let your protestation of innocence be noted into the record. However, it becomes mandatory upon this court to pass sentence. This court, upon recommendation of the jury, finds you, Timothy Edward Ryan, guilty as charged in the indictment and sentences you to death in the electric chair.
17: That's preposterous. Oh, no! No, no, no! May
9: God have mercy on your soul.
18: Later in the day, Catherine Ryan called on me at my office.
5: Oh, John, I, I know, I know that Tim is innocent. What can we
16: do? Now, now,
18: Catherine, let's not all get excited and tip over the apple cart. But
5: we've
16: so little time, so little time. Your lawyer
18: will ask for a new trial. Then there'll be an appeal taken to a higher court. Meantime, you may rest assured that I will do everything I can to see that justice is
16: served. Everything isn't enough, John. My husband is under sentence of death for a murder that he did not commit. Hmm. Do you know how I know? In every woman's heart, there is a margin for love. She feels instinctively. She knows. Believe
18: me. Catherine, I'm not a criminal lawyer. Perhaps that's why I can look at this case from a distance and see it better. Remember, Tim is my friend as well as your husband. I don't intend to let him down. Tomorrow morning I'm going to see him and try to find a clue that may prove his innocence. But whatever happens, rest assured, Catherine, no stone will be left unturned.
17: The next morning, I called on the prisoner. It's no use, John. You heard the verdict. They say I'm guilty. I haven't got a Chinaman's chance. Jim, I'm going to do everything in my power to help you. Both Catherine and I. But you've got to help me find the answer. You know what happened, John, as well as I do. I had murder in my heart and a gun in my pocket the night I hid behind that tree and waited for him to come out of his house. I intended to just threaten him if he refused to pay me back for the fraudulent oil stock he sold me. Every penny Kathy and I had in the world, he took it away, he stole it from us by false promises and deceit. I was desperate. But I stood under that tree waiting. Suddenly, I saw him come out of the house, turn in my direction, and then...
5: Oh! oh, oh. <laughs>
17: When I came to, I saw his body alongside of me. My gun lay between us. The neighborhood was in an uproar.
18: Yes, Tim, I've heard the story. And it always ends when the police picked you up. But who hit you on the head? Who took your gun and pumped seven shots into the body of Tom Miller? Who dropped your gun and ran away into the darkness of the night?
17: Who? I wish I knew, John. (laughs) So that I could be the first to shake him by the hand. And that's the truth. Well, shaking his hand won't save you, Tim. You say you heard feet running away after the shots were fired. only dimly. I I was half unconscious. I, I heard the shots and... Then I heard the feet running down the concrete sidewalk. They, they sounded like, well, like little trip hammers. That's all I can remember. Like
18: trip hammers, eh? Well, that's interesting. Yes, that's very interesting. Why? Tim, unknowingly, you've given me the first tangible clue. Seven shots and running feet that sounded like trip hammers. Doesn't that mean anything to you? No,
17: it doesn't mean anything at all.
18: I don't want to arouse the slightest hope that we've stumbled onto something, Tim. But from what you've told me, I think I know the sex of the murderer. The sex? Seven shots. Every shell there was in the automatic. Means that the gun was fired by a highly emotional person. One in whose heart burned the raging fires of hate. Add that to the running trip hammers and you have...
17: You have what, John?
18: The murderer of Tom Miller. A woman. (laughs) A woman. Knowing the sex of the murderer proved of little value during the passing months. Winter melted into spring, and spring blossomed into summer. And in spite of all our efforts, not a single further clue was found.
13: Extra! Extra! Ryan
9: to die tomorrow night. Ryan to die tomorrow night. Extra, extra,
13: read all about it, extra!
18: Only 24 hours remained to bring a murderer to bay. A clever, scheming murderer who had evaded every net, every suspicion. Frankly, I was at my wit's end. Catherine was distraught. Nothing I could say or do would console her.
16: We're at the end of the rope, John. It's all over.
18: No, oh, it looks bad, Catherine, I'll admit, but, well, we've got 24 hours.
16: Yes, I know. 24 hours. But each one of them will fly past without helping us. And then. Oh, John, the electric
5: chair! It's horrible
18: We won't give up yet We can't I'll go back to my office And see if I can find Any lost threads That might uh, have escaped me Call me there If anything happens But nothing happened Either that night Or the following day Only three hours of life Remained for Timothy Ryan And then Death was terrifying, and worst of all, I knew that there was nothing more I could do. I'd reached the end of the road. I sat in my apartment and waited as the hands of the clock moved relentlessly forward. One hour to go. One hour to midnight.
17: It's eleven o'clock, Tim. Yeah, eleven o'clock. One hour to go. Oh, poor Kathy.
9: To think she'll have to remember this all of her life. The barber will come in now, Tim. you got to get your hair trimmed. So the electrodes won't miss. Is that why, Warden? That's why, Tim. You know,
17: I don't think that I like doing this job. I'm only human. I know, I know. You can't help it. It just seems funny getting it for something I didn't do. But it's all right, Warden. It's all right. You, you can send the barber in. <laughs> Hello, Mr. O'Connell. Yes. Well, this is Doctor.
18: Oh, just a moment, please. There's a storm coming up, and I can hardly hear you. Excuse me while I close the window. Yes. There
17: yeah, now, Doctor. This is Dr. Wilbur of the emergency hospital over on East 68th Street.
18: Yes, doctor?
17: We've just received an emergency case, automobile accident. The patient is dying. She's just made a will and asked me to call you immediately.
18: I'll drive over right away if you like, doctor. I wish
17: you would, Mr. O'Connell. There isn't much time, and what she has to say may save a man's life.
18: What do you mean, doctor? Whose life?
17: This woman, her name is Gloria Dever, has just confessed to the murder of Tom Miller.
18: I broke all speed records that night on my trip over to the emergency hospital. Was this Gloria Deba telling the truth? Was it she, Tim, had heard running away from the scene of the crime? I had to know, and quickly. There was less than half an hour left. Less than half an hour before the switch was to be turned on at the state's prison.
17: Dr. Wilbur? Are you, Dr. Wilbur? Yes, and you're Mr.
18: O'Connell. Right, Doctor. Will you take me to this woman, Miss Gloria Dever, please? Excuse me if I seem over anxious, but there's uh, there's so little time. It's too late, Mr. O'Connell. Miss Dever
17: died about five minutes ago. Died? But, Doctor, Doctor, think. But here, what... Mr. O'Connell. Here is her last will. Oh. I,
18: Gloria Deva, being of sound mind and body in the presence of death, do hereby... But the, the, the confession, doctor, the confession, where I is that? I think it begins on page two, Mr. O'Connell. Oh, yeah, yes, you see, there it is. I do hereby confess the murder of my ex-husband, Tom Miller. I see, she was his ex-wife. That's right. I hated him. Five years ago, he deserted me, left me penniless, run away. I swore vengeance. I swore to kill him. I watched him for weeks, and then one night while I was watching his house, waiting to kill him, I saw a man behind a tree. I didn't see his face, but... I saw he was watching, too. I crept up to him. He didn't hear me. I hit him over the head with a stone. I wanted no interference. Vengeance was mine alone. When the man fell, I saw a gun. And I saw, too, that Tom Miller was coming my way. I took the gun and shot. Shot until every bullet was gone. And then I ran away. Doctor, you don't know what this means. This verifies everything Tim Ryan said in court. This confession will clear Tim Ryan of the charge of murder. Excuse me if I run. I've I've got work to do. Yes. Catherine, this is John. Listen, there's been a miracle. A miracle? What do you mean? Gloria Dever, the first Mrs. Miller, died tonight in the 68th Street Emergency Hospital. I don't know yet what happened, but um, listen, Catherine. Yes? She confessed to killing her ex-husband. Take a cab over to my apartment. We've got 35 minutes to stop this legal murder. Hurry now and keep your chin up.
16: You see, John? You see? I knew it. That was my
5: margin for love. <laughs> <laughs>
9: She live in 11.30, Tim. I see you got your hair cut. Yeah. My last one. <laughs> oh, well. I never did like barbers anyway. Tim, I've been seeing a lot of you lately. Only wish the jury had believed your story about that dame running away. Well,
17: you can't blame them, Warden. After all, I... I did have a gun. There were seven shots fired, and they found me right on the spot. Who could believe that I didn't do it? Especially when I was waiting for him. Yes, that's the trouble with
9: these open and shut cases. Sometimes they're too open to suit me. There's not much that can be done about it now, Warden. No, I guess not, Tim. Anything I can get you. No, no, thanks, Warden. Father McNamara will be here in a few minutes. You'll uh,
17: you'll see him, won't you? Of course. I've got a lot to get off my chest. Not much time to do it in.
18: Barnes? Yes. This is John O'Connell. Can you hear me? Well, it's rather bad, but I hear you, John. What is it? Judge Barnes, the murderer of Tom Miller just confessed, made a deathbed statement at the 68th Street Emergency Hospital. Confessed, you mean? Yes, Judge, in black and white. I've been trying to reach the lawyer who handles the defense, but he's out of the city, so I've got to act for him. There's only 30 minutes left. Call the governor.
9: Call the prison. Tell them that I'm issuing a stay of execution. You call them. I'll make out the papers. Tell the governor I'll send them down by special messenger.
5: My
18: oh, Catherine, you're soaking wet. Here, get over in front of the fire. I'll tell you what's happened.
5: Oh,
16: John, don't waste a moment until we're sure.
18: I won't. Judge Barnes has issued a stay of execution on Gloria Devers' confession. I've got to call the governor and the prison officials to advise them of what's happened. Don't worry, everything's going to be all right.
16: Oh, I'm so happy, John. So happy. You won't mind if I stand here and cry a little, will you?
18: No, of course not. It's perhaps the only thing left to do. The way I feel, I could almost join you.
16: I'm all right now, John. Go ahead and reach the governor. There's only 20 minutes.
17: minutes, Jim. Father Mac help you? I'm as ready now as I ever can be, Warden. Don't care much about these slits and my pants legs, though. Why can't they send a
9: guy off in his Sunday suit? Prison regulations, I guess. Somebody started this barbarity centuries ago. And for all I learn and in progress, we haven't changed much for the better, have we?
17: Yes, it doesn't make much difference. When you're gone, you're gone, and your Sunday suit won't do much good where they send you either, will it?
9: Jim, Kathy was here yesterday i would have let her see you
17: only you said not to thanks no i, I want her to remember me as i was not as i am why make a swell girl like her suffer any more than you have to
9: i guess you're right tim no use breaking her heart all over again
18: and reach the operator. 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 Operator.
16: Number, please.
18: Operator, listen to me. This is John Francis O'Connell, attorney at law. Put in a long-distance call to the governor's residence for me. A man is scheduled to die in 17 minutes. One
16: moment, please. I'll connect you long distance.
18: Oh, all right.
16: Long distance.
18: Long distance. This is John O'Connell, attorney at law. I want to place a call, an emergency call, to the governor's residence. A man's life. I'm
16: sorry, sir, but there'll be a slight delay. All of the circuits are busy. Oh,
18: hang the circuits. I tell you, a man's life is in danger. A man is to die at midnight. I tell you...
16: One moment, please. I'll connect you with my supervisor. Oh, hang
18: the supervisor. I want the governor's mansion. This is
16: a supervisor speaking. Supervisor,
18: listen. In just nine minutes, a man is scheduled to die in the electric chair. I have evidence to save him.
16: I'm sorry, sir. I can't make out what you are saying.
18: Supervisor, supervisor, don't leave the line. I want the governor. The governor. Do you understand me? Get me the governor.
16: One moment, please. I'll try and connect you. John Brighton. Only five minutes to midnight. Only five minutes.
18: Now, I'll, I'll have him in a moment.
17: It's time to go, Tim. Well, I'd like a last cigarette. Got a match warden? Sure, I have.
9: <sighs> Thanks, Warden. Will you please wear these slippers? Rules, you know. Sure, Warden, why not? Tim, I want to shake your hand. I think you're a fine man. Maybe you did kill Tom Miller. but maybe he deserved it.
17: Thanks. Well, here we start on that last mile. Ave
9: Maria, gracia, plenidomeno, steco, mini rebus, anything is good.
16: I'm sorry, sir. The line is busy. Will you please try the call again?
18: Listen, I've got less than four minutes to reach the governor before an innocent man dies in the electric chair. I order you to cut into the conversation and let me talk to the governor. If you don't. One
16: moment, please.
18: I'll get to the governor if I can. Oh, we to... should
5: hurry. Only two more minutes. Two more minutes.
16: And then... Hello,
18: hello, hello, supervisor. Supervisor, I'm waiting for the governor. There's only two more... One
16: moment, please. I'm trying to complete your call. One
18: moment, one moment. That's all that's been going on for the last half hour. There's less than two minutes to go. For heaven's sake, get that call through to the governor. Operator. Operator. I don't hear any sound on the phone. Operator. Operator. But the phone is dead.
9: And Ready, Warden. Ready. Throw the switch.
18: Twelve o'clock. And the phone is dead. We've lost, Cathy. We've lost. Catherine Ryan and I sat there looking out of the window... ...into the thunderous gloom and the rain that poured down from the sky. It was over. Undoubtedly, Tim Ryan had paid the state in full... ...for a crime which he did not commit. As we sat there, peering out into the rain-swept darkness... ...our thoughts were
16: bitter. Well, John... No use staying any longer.
5: we tried our best. You'll never know how grateful I am for what you've done.
18: Catherine, I don't have to tell you how badly I feel about tonight. With complete vindication within our grasp, only to lose it in a storm. Let me drive you home.
5: Will you please, John?
18: Of course I will. Here, let me help you into your coat. There's not much I can say. You know that. Except I wish you'd go away for a rest, Catherine. You've been through the mill. You deserved more,
5: but... Thank you, John. I'll stay home for a few days until after I... have buried him.
16: And then... Well, maybe rest
5: would be...
18: Well, she's finally got through to the governor, I suppose. We ought to declare a national holiday. Excuse me, please. Yes?
16: Mr. O'Connell, this is a supervisor speaking. I'm sorry, but electrical disturbances prevented me from reaching the governor's residence.
18: Yes, yes, I know. It's too bad.
16: Shall I try again in the morning, sir?
18: In the morning? No. Never mind. Good night, miss. It seemed like a death watch. Not a word was spoken between us. What was there to be said? To take our minds off the stark horror of the night, I switched on the radio.
17: Damages from the torrential downpour which disrupted light, phone, and travel service throughout the state may run into several million dollars. And here's an interesting item that can be blamed solely on the electrical storm. Timothy Ryan, convicted murderer who was sentenced to be electrocuted at midnight tonight, got a real break.
16: Oh, John!
17: Due to the fact that the storm disrupted the electrical circuits... The electric chair failed to operate with the result that the condemned man was given a 24-hour reprieve by the warden.
5: Oh, John! John. Ahead, John!
16: He's alive!
17: off the radio, Catherine. He's Hang
16: alive! Hang on. Where are we going, John?
18: Right back to the apartment. This time we're going to reach the governor.
16: Oh. oh, don't look now, John, but I think we're being followed by a cop.
18: By a cop? <laughs> Let it dump. When he hears what we've got to
5: tell
18: him, he'll leak away. <laughs> well, I finally reached the governor, and today Timothy Edward Ryan is reunited with his wife, a free man, and cleared of every vestige of the crime of murder. The last will and testament of the first Mrs. Miller proved to be authentic in every detail. According to the doctor who heard her bedside confession, she had planned the destruction of her husband for several weeks and then, by a stroke of fate, found a way to place the blame for the killing on an innocent man's shoulders. The black sin of revenge lurked in both of their hearts, it's true. But the one reached fulfillment, the other smoldered. And rest assured, Timothy Ryan learned a bitter lesson he won't soon forget. Hereafter, he'll leave the revenge... To heaven, where it belongs. Next week, I'm going to tell you a story about love and intrigue in Monte Carlo. A handsome young American composer wanted to meet a very charming and lovely girl, and I arranged it. But I didn't plan on what happened shortly thereafter. A group of international schemers and plotters offered to give me a strange and unusual will for my collection. And I appreciated their intentions until I learned the will was was to be my own. (laughs) How My young friend and I managed to escape with our lives and foil their plans is told in the unusual story we call They Met in Monte Carlo. This is Warren William inviting you to listen again next week.
17: Strange Wills is written by Ken Crepine and directed by Robert Webster Light. Any similarity between names used on this show and those of living persons is purely coincidental. This is a Tellaway's feature
0: produced in
17: Hollywood.
0: And that's Strange Wills from March seventh, 1947, with Margin for Love, and that starred Warren William, also in that cast, Lorene Tuttle, and Howard Culver, that was syndicated, so there was no sponsors on that. Hope you enjoyed Strange Wills. All right, let's take a quick break, then it's more here on the WGN Radio Theater. Lisa, I have to tell you, I am really loving my Vistro meals that get sent to me uh frozen. I put them in my freezer and when I'm hungry, which is all the time, I just take one out, pop it in the microwave and gobble it up.
1: Well, I'm so glad that I shared my little Vistro secret with you. Vistro is a a vegan organic subscription service and they deliver a wide variety of plant-based meals straight to your home. So, what I'd say is stay home, don't go to the grocery store, let Vistro cook and deliver your food. It is absolutely delicious, like you said. It pops right into the microwave or the oven, and uh, no chopping, no cooking, no cleaning, and most importantly, no grocery shopping.
0: Yeah, you know what? Look, folks, Lisa turned me into a Vistro lover. So go to their website, Vistro v e e s t r o dot Learn all about Vistro. And when you go to their website,
1: you get fifteen percent off your first order. Give it a shot. I am sure that. You'll love it. I love it. Carl loves it. You will, too. That's Vistro.com, V-E-E-S-T-R-O.com.
0: When we come back after the news, we'll tune into Orson Wells in the Lives of Harry Lime, plus part one of the Aldridge family. That's uh, right after the news. Stick around.